0: variants could throw a wrench into California's COVID plans.
1: The question is not whether it will become the dominant strain, it will.
0: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. La Mesa police get roundly criticized in a report on the May protests.
2: So while it doesn't out and out uh, say that the police was to blame, that uh, a lot of the things that they had done should have been done a different way.
0: The first female Marine recruits on the West Coast arrive for boot camp and students in Watts find inspiration in Amanda Gorman's inauguration poem. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Just as San Diego begins to enjoy a small relaxation of the COVID lockdown, a group of local researchers has issued a stark warning. A presentation at the County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday outlined how increased transmissions, even with a robust vaccination program, could cause COVID cases to skyrocket and hospitals become overwhelmed. The concern is that because the more infectious coronavirus variant first discovered in the UK is likely to become the dominant strain here very soon, this is not a good time to increase social contact at restaurants or other venues. Joining me is the researcher who made yesterday's presentation to the supervisors, Natasha Martin, an infectious disease modeler. She's associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. And Natasha, thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thanks for having me. Why
0: is the UK variant expected to become the dominant strain here? There are still fewer than 100 cases identified, isn't that right?
1: That's right. Uh, What we can see across places where the B117 variant has emerged, um, such as in the UK and um, in other places in Europe, once that strain was identified, it quickly became the dominant strain because it is estimated to be 50 to 70 percent more transmissible than previous strains. That emergence and domination of that strain meant that in places with, that which have seen the strain become dominant have experienced surges of infections. Although the prevalence of the B117 variant is estimated to be relatively low currently in San Diego at 5%, again, because of this increased transmissibility, we anticipate that it will become the dominant strain within a matter of weeks. The question is not whether it will become the dominant strain, it will, but how long it will take and whether we have the capacity to reduce transmission and prevent it becoming a situation that overwhelms our hospital resources. When
0: you say more transmissible, does that mean masks are not as effective?
1: Yes, the evidence that we have is that individuals who are infected with the B11 st- strain have a higher level of viral load than other um, strains, which means that they are more infectious and more likely to transmit the virus to others. And that means that we, we want to be particularly adherent to wearing um, masks properly and at, at all times, if possible, when um, in the company of other individuals to prevent this more infectious and more transmissible strain from spreading to others
0: and that means a social gatherings should be avoided
1: Yes, I think in this period where we, although we've seen a decline recently in transmissions after the New Year's and Christmas surge, which is good, the concern is that as this variant becomes more dominant and more prevalent in our community, just because of the increased transmissibility, we will very likely see an increase in cases due to that, even if behavior does not change. So what we want to do is anticipate that this might happen and take all measures possible in terms of masking and social distancing to reduce transmission, reduce the circulation of this more transmissible variant, and buy us time to vaccinate individuals and increase coverage of vaccination to achieve herd immunity. You also say there are indications that the
0: strain is more lethal. What can you tell us about that evidence?
1: There's some preliminary data which emerged from the scientific body which advises the UK government to indicate that in the UK, this strain may be potentially 30% more lethal than other strains. I think we still need more evidence, but it's an added uh, consideration When we're thinking about the potential surge that could occur due to the the strain's increased transmissibility, we then also need to consider that those who become infected with this strain may be more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to need intensive care, and more likely to die. So, you know, this is a particular concern in terms of the expansion of this, this variant. The modeling that's
0: been done by state public health officials that led to the end of the stay-at-home order is based on a trending decline in cases and hospitalizations. Doesn't that indicate that the variant is not taking hold the way you project?
1: So that modeling just takes into account the estimated transmission rate or effective reproduction number at, at a given moment in time. So it incorporates our understanding of, on average, how many people are being infected by an infected individual today. It does not take into account the fact that there are changing variants, that there may be variants in some places, such as the B117 strain, which will quickly dominate and are more infectious. And so those projections will need to be revised as we see emergence of variants and potentially increased uh, transmission as a result of them.
0: Where does an increased vaccination program figure into this modeling?
1: So vaccination will remove individuals from the susceptible pool and prevent and reduce the likelihood of them becoming infected, therefore reducing transmission overall. A vaccination program will both prevent infections as well as mortality, and that's good, and it also reduces the amount of circulating virus in the community, which will both reduce the um, expansion of the B117 variant and will also reduce the likelihood that there will be other variants that emerge that may be uh, more infectious, more lethal, and the vaccines may be potentially less effective against them. So, vaccination is a key strategy to reduce the amount of circulating virus and prevent the um, emergence of B117 and other variants. Could increased vaccinations change the picture so much that we would
0: not see a surge in any variant and it wouldn't increase the number of cases?
1: So, our modeling has projected that a vaccination program can help flatten the curve, prevent infections, and mitigate some of the expected surge that we anticipate due to the um, emergence of the B117 variant and its increased transmissibility. It is likely that we will need more than just the vaccination program in order to continue this downward trend that we're recently see, observing in terms of case counts. The modeling indicates that even with a comprehensive vaccination program, we will still likely see cases at least returning to where they are now or potentially higher than we're currently seeing them. And so we need a combination of a robust vaccination program as well as strict adherence to masking and social distancing orders in order to reduce transmission and flatten that curve. Based on your research
0: on the threats variants pose, do you think the state lifting lockdown orders was premature?
1: I think that we just need to be extremely cautious in the coming weeks and months to come and continually monitor the amount of viral transmission and be ready to act if we see an increase in case counts and an increase in hospitalizations. One of the things that we can anticipate with the expansion of this B117 variant is that we could see in a relatively short period of time, on the order of weeks. And quickly accelerating number of cases because of the expansion of the variant. I think we just need to be particularly um, observant cautious about reopening and able to monitor the situation and uh, reverse policies if we see concerning trends.
0: I've been speaking with Natasha Martin. She is an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having
1: me. The killing
5: of George Floyd by a Minnesota police officer and the false arrest of Amari Johnson by a La Mesa officer. Led to social justice protest in La Mesa at the end of May. La Mesa police responded with tear gas. Flashbangs and beanbags. What was a peaceful protest turned violent, leaving businesses burned to the ground and people injured. The city has been taking a close look at what went wrong. Now, a consulting group commissioned to find out is reporting the department was ill prepared. According to their findings, officers lacked training, communication, leadership, and policies that would have likely de escalated the situation. This report comes as the search continues for a new police chief and the city of La Mesa works to. To create a police oversight board. Karen Perlman, who covers East San Diego County for the San Diego Union-Tribune, joins us with a closer look. Karen, welcome.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
5: So what does the report say about how a lack of communication affected the police response during the protests?
2: Well, evidently, there should be an incident command post. And while La Mesa had one, it wasn't properly staffed, I think, for some of the time. The report has found that the way that it was set up was not proper, properly ready for what was what was coming. Um, they had a lieutenant who was in charge of it, and I think maybe wasn't quite ready for all the things that were happening and the changeover from protests to a more violent uprising of a mob, kind of a mob scene took place. I, I don't think that the incident command post set up was, was properly um was vetted, and they've actually said that they are going to start looking into making changes to that um, to be better prepared for any other kind of disaster that that comes forward here.
5: And they also said there wasn't a good plan in place before the protest as well, right?
2: Yes, there was also a protest the night before on the 29th, the night before the 30th events, and the the plan they think they used the same one on the 30th that they did on the 29th, and it obviously the 30th turned into a lot more than the 29th was. A very low key thing with maybe 80 people. The, the event that happened the next night was obviously many, many times more people than that. So they weren't quite ready for what they needed to have with a comprehensive operation plan. And they were told by the Hillard Heinz group that did the uh, investigation that that information is really important for uh, everybody involved to understand and follow certain protocols. And they didn't have that information Hmm. And what did the report
5: mean when they said there were no de-escalation policies in place?
2: Well, I think the city still is working on that. Um, I think some of the things that they've had in the past are not best practices today. So the ways that they were approaching people was probably not the best way, but that was the only way they knew how. And they're, I believe, going through more training now to be able to properly uh, deal with things like that.
5: Did the report find that La Mesa police lack the training to respond to a big protest?
2: Yes. Um, and they, you know, La Mesa has already taken steps to, to learn how to deal better with that. Um, ongoing training is going to be part of, you know, the moves going forward here.
5: Hillard Hines analyzed the department's existing policies as part of this report and said the department did not have a robust community engagement policy. Here's Chad McGinty of Hillard Hines. Take a listen.
6: But some of the things we learned related to that community policing is that the general public seeks to uh, create a more open, proactive, and transparent communication between the PD and the community. Uh, They would look for the PD to embrace the creation of the oversight task force. They would look to have the improvement of the department's community policing, their their, uh, community outreach and relationship building. They would seek to have research and implement alternative responses to mental health crisis calls for service. They would look for increased diversity within the department ranks, uh, emphasize uh, de escalation as a philosophy and a tactic, uh, deliver training to LNPD that, that focuses on cultural diversity. And lastly, they, they would like to see documented data from field and traffic stops. So clearly, the, the community voiced their opinions. And we found that that the written policies and strategies weren't directly aligned to those requests.
5: Overall, this evaluation by Hillard Hines is very critical of La Mesa police, from preparation for the protest to its use of force policies. Does it go so far as to blame the police for the injuries and destruction during the protest?
2: It does not, but it does take a very critical look at all the events and how things could have been done better. So while it doesn't out and out uh, say that you know, the police was to blame, uh, the police force is to blame that uh, a lot of the things that they had done should have been done a different way. And maybe they could learn from the things that they did um, without proper background, maybe training that they should have had.
5: And what are some of the recommendations for the La Mesa Police Department in this report?
2: There kind of need to look at the use of force policy. Uh, so it's going with current best practices right now. Um, I think they're a little out of date and they are actually implementing that right now, according to the uh, acting chief. While, you know, they're looking for another police chief right now, the two captains are have been switching off duties as the role of police chief right now. Um, but to get a uh, use of force policy that's uh, with best practices and more more community engagement, I think, is, is Uh, something that they were talking about, more than just their coffee with the cop, uh, which they have on occasion, at least before COVID, events where the community is involved with them. I think the oversight task force and everything will help that a little bit too. But they they need to get more crowd control training. Um, I think they're working on that too, crowd control policies, um, obviously communication between the police department and the city and the community. That's something that really needs to be uh, concentrated on. I know they spoke about that. The city council members were speaking about that last night. Some of the things that they've heard from the people that they want to see Um, a lot more interaction with the community, listen to what we have to say and and be much more clear uh, communicating with us.
5: Mm. You know, following the presentation of the report during the city council meeting last night, community members had a chance to weigh in. What were some of their comments?
2: You know, people did not, only two people commented at the meeting last night, which I was very surprised about. Um, I, I, I've i talked to a couple city council members since then about why there aren't so many people talking about it. I think everyone's kind of talked out about it. And now the report is out there. Um, I was expecting a lot more people to comment about the findings in the report, but nobody was really, uh, was really out there. Somebody said the uh, incident that led to the social justice march and the protesting and the the violent aftermath was what happened at the trolley station. But that wasn't really discussed in the report. And somebody, you know, made a public comment last night about that very thing, like why this is really what happened and why it happened in La Mesa. And it was sort of like glossed over in the report. And I believe it's probably because there's, you know, outstanding litigation about it. Hmm.
5: And the acting police chief briefly responded to the report. What did he have to say?
2: You know, he said, you know, they're taking stock of everything that they're doing and they're trying to update their policies um, and coordinate with other agencies. I think that they uh, had other people come in from parts of the county and the sheriff's departments. And I don't think that the communication was as up to par. So I think they're going to do a lot of that uh, extra training with that and extra um just a look into how they can improve on those kinds of things, biasness that they might have within the department, um, just collaborating with other groups to, to learn best practices as they move forward.
5: And, and so what's next in terms of this report and possible reform at the La Mesa Police Department?
2: So I think that there's going to be a lot of changes with uh, the way that the community uh, deals with the police and how the police deals with the community. I think this task force that they named the people last night, also later in the meeting, Uh, they actually will have a task force that will be able to provide some oversight and give the community a chance to weigh in on things as as they move forward. Mm. All right. I've been speaking
5: with Karen Perlman, who covers East San Diego County for the San Diego Union Tribune. Karen, thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
7: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
0: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinman Today, contractors and government workers building the border wall along America's southwest border must stop all work. The halt ordered by President Biden. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler gives us a look on where things now stand in San Diego County.
7: Over 25 miles of 30-foot-high border wall replacements were built by the Trump administration along the border in San Diego County during the past two years. As of last week, work in several areas, including the Otay Mountain Wilderness, was ongoing. On his first day in office, President Biden ended a declared national emergency on the border and gave construction workers along the border one week to wrap up their work and leave it in a safe condition, while his administration reviews the entire border wall project. Workers had just begun preparing to tear down fencing at Friendship Park, right near the Pacific Ocean, for another 30-foot-high replacement project, something advocates for the park had been rallying against for months. Many advocates didn't expect the Biden administration to take such immediate action along the border. John Fannis is with the Friends of Friendship
6: Park. Yeah, President Biden had said that not another foot of wall would be built on his watch. So that led us to hope that there would be this immediate halt. We were pleasantly surprised that it actually happened.
7: Elsewhere on the border in San Diego, members of the Kumeyaay Nation continued their protest against wall construction. They filed a lawsuit over the summer, saying the government skipped necessary reviews into whether construction would destroy their cultural heritage sites, as it continued to build the wall near Campo. Stan Rodriguez is a member of the Kumeyaay Nation, who protested against the wall this weekend.
6: To me, it seemed like an edifice that was created for white hegemony and also xenophobia and marginalizing Native people.
7: Biden's order stops all construction, regardless of whether the money was appropriated specifically for wall construction or if it was redirected by the Trump administration to the border wall from the budget of the Department of Defense. Multiple judges have ruled that Trump's move was illegal, but border wall construction proceeded anyway. As of this Tuesday, construction had halted at projects across San Diego County. That gives groups like the Friends of Friendship Park a last-minute reprieve to try to stop a project that would replace border fencing that's only a decade old. Robert Vivar, who was deported from the U.S. and works with Friends of Friendship Park from the Mexico side, thinks this is a great opportunity to reassess the border wall project and the future of shared spaces along the border.
8: Perhaps it would be an opportunity for uh, a dialogue to start uh, regarding uh, similar binational parks all along the border uh, to really look at creating security on the border uh, through friendship of both countries.
7: A 60-day review of the border wall project will determine what's to be done with the money appropriated to the border wall and whether to resume or terminate projects. The administration hasn't made clear whether its pledge not to construct more border wall includes replacement projects, like most of the construction done in San Diego County under the Trump administration. Pedro Rios is a steering committee member of the Southern Border Communities
8: Coalition. Our objective is to uh, make sure that the Biden administration understands that even a replacement wall is still, still has not only deadly consequences, but has the potential of transforming the local ecological habitat, defaming uh, cultural sites. And that's an important conversation that can only be, can only take place when the uh, impacted community is consulted about how to restore the lands, and how to mitigate the damage that has been done.
7: The Biden administration did not respond to a request for comment from KPBS. For groups opposing the border wall, like the Kumiai, the path for the Biden administration is clear, says Stan Rodriguez.
6: The prior administration broke many of their own laws in order to put this edifice up. No wall stops people. There's other solutions to this. And a great person, like a great country, keeps their word. Keep your word. Stop it. Make things right.
0: Joining me is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler. And Max, welcome. Good to be here. Tell us more about the section of fencing that was going to be replaced at Friendship Park. Is this the area where the Border Church congregation meets?
7: Yeah. So right now there's two fences in the area where the Pacific Ocean uh, meets the border fence. It actually goes in, The border fence actually goes into the Pacific Ocean. There was kind of the bollard style one, the metal fence that reaches into the ocean, and then a secondary fence, which was made of wire mesh. Uh, the secondary fence was installed during the Obama administration, so it's only a decade old. The Both of these fences were going to be replaced with the new style of border wall fence that the Trump administration had been building, which are these third. 30- 30 foot high bollards uh, so it would radically change the uh, landscape surrounding the park which already has extremely limited access
0: and would it make interaction virtually impossible
7: that's pretty much it right now. The whole state park has been closed because of COVID restrictions and flooding from last year. When it reopens, already access to the park is severely limited. It's only a few hours every weekend under strict border patrol uh, permission and surveillance. Even just the the image of these two thirty foot high fences on either side of what's supposed to be a park where people are supposed to meet and congregate uh, made advocates for the park consider it uh, totally outside of the spirit of of international collaboration and friendship.
0: So construction is stopped there. It's stopped in Otay Mesa. Has all the work done in San Diego been replacement walls?
7: Most of it. The vast majority have been replacement walls, but in places... Uh, further east uh, in East County, there have been some new sections of border wall where there wasn't before. Again, I kind of want to raise the idea that basically when they say they're doing replacement wall, you're taking this very small barrier, which are, you know, the the landing mats the Vietnam era landing mats that have demarcated the border for so many years. And you're replacing it with really serious high walls that are 30 foot high and that involve serious work being done around to support them. So it's a real transformation. It's not just a, uh, you know, replace an old thing with a new thing that looks just like it.
0: Now, you say President Biden stopped a declared national emergency at the border. Remind us, was declaring a national emergency the way former President Trump got the border wall project going in the first place?
7: It was one of the ways it allowed him to bypass several uh, reviews that would need to be taken and to reallocate funds from the Department of defense to go towards border wall construction. So that reallocation was done under the guise that this was an emergency happening, be it either drug smuggling, human trafficking, and just cartel violence that necessitated a wall to be built at that place and at that time, and allowed the government to skip all of these required reviews and and planning and consultation with local groups. Of course, several um, courts eventually struck that reasoning down, but they went ahead with the project anyway.
0: Does President Biden's executive order mark a permanent halt to the border wall project?
7: It doesn't. So what it does is it initiates a 60-day review where the Biden administration says it's entirely possible that many of these projects go forward. They're going to look at whether the payment for these projects went ahead properly, whether the contractors are under obligation to finish the work, whether they could get out of the contract, and whether these you know replacement projects should go ahead because of deficiencies in the wall design right now. Biden um, has said I will not build another foot more of border wall, but he never really specified whether that includes replacement projects, something that both uh, when he was vice president was quite common along the border. They, They built several miles of border fence under the Obama administration.
0: Now, more border news happened yesterday in federal court in Texas. A judge halted President Biden's plan to stop deportations for the next 100 days. Why did Biden want the deportations halted?
7: Yeah, much like the border wall project, he did the 100-day pause instead of a 60-day pause for the border wall, 100 days for deportations to investigate and take a look at what priorities have been done uh, under deportations. Who's being deported? Are they asylum seekers? And on top of that, what we have is a, a very large asylum seeker backlog along the southwest border. Um, So look ahead in the next couple of days for actual action here along the southwest border for the uh, immigration agents who could be redirected from deportations to begin to process asylum claims here.
0: Why did the judge block the deportation moratorium, though?
7: The judge, who is a recent Trump administration appointee, said that the harm to Texas in this case uh, would be because it has to pay the medical bills and emergency services and for school, for undocumented people who are subject to being removed, uh, who have received final removal orders. So Texas is being harmed by the fact that no one is being deported.
0: Will the Biden administration appeal that ruling?
7: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's important to note that not all of it was blocked, because part of the proclamation of the deportation moratorium was changing ICE's uh, interior enforcement priorities. That has not been struck down. What has been struck down is this pause. The Biden administration is going to appeal, but because this was filed in Texas, it's going to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's a really tough circuit for a more liberal administration. There's a lot of conservative appointees there. This might end up going all the way to the Supreme Court. and who Who knows what's going to happen. Legal scholars have looked at this case as a really bizarre interpretation of the law by this judge in Texas and basically saying, you know, this nullifies the supremacy clause, which allows the federal government to direct basically deportation and and other executive actions that it would like to do. It it makes Texas have a veto power on executive power, which um, a lot of legal scholars are shaking their head at.
0: I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler, and Max, thank you. Thank you. Governor
5: Gavin Newsom has made bold promises to solve homelessness, and thousands of people have been sheltered under his watch. But CAP Radio's Chris Nichols explains as part of our series on the governor's progress this week, advocates wonder if the early success will
9: last. Past California governors largely ignored the state's homelessness crisis. Newsom has tried to tackle the problem head on. I
6: don't think homelessness can be solved. I know that homelessness can be solved.
9: Newsom devoted nearly all of last year's State of the State address to this ongoing human emergency.
6: This is our cause. It's our calling. Let's all rise to the challenge and make California stand up as an exemplar of what true courage and compassion can achieve. Let's all get to work. Thank you, guys. Thank you all.
9: In some ways, he has delivered. Newsom has worked with state lawmakers to invest billions of dollars in housing, rental assistance, and health services for homeless people. Last year, his team searched the state for excess land and even vacant hospitals to use as shelters. This spring, he won praise for moving more than 22,000 homeless people into motel rooms, all to prevent major outbreaks of COVID-19. The effort, called Project Roomkey, largely worked. Being inside, it means a lot to me, it does. I feel safe. I'm safe, I'm secure. That 65-year-old Curtis Freeman, who was on the streets of Sacramento for nearly a year. He lived in a tent under a freeway, often afraid for his life. Then in March, he got a motel room through Roomkey. Standing outside his motel near Interstate 5 wearing a black and white beanie, Freeman says he's no longer afraid. I ain't got to worry about nobody, you know, coming in. I can lay down and relax. But despite Newsom's efforts, the crisis remains. Homeless camps line sidewalks, riverbanks and freeways across the state. An estimated 150,000 Californians are without a home, according to the most recent federal survey. This summer, to build on the progress of Roomkey, Newsom introduced Project Homekey. The new effort awarded $800 million to cities and counties to buy motels for more permanent homeless housing. But some of Newsom's critics say without providing more services, programs like Roomkey and Homekey just serve to score political points.
6: That results in leaders patting themselves on the back and checking another
9: box. Former state lawmaker Mike Gatto, a Democrat from Los Angeles, says Newsom's policies need to have a greater emphasis on mental health treatment so that people are more self-sufficient.
6: But in reality, the people are not given the support that they need, or frankly, the tough love that they need. And then they wind out back on the street.
9: Newsom says mental health support is on its way as part of the nearly $2 billion he wants to spend on homelessness in his January budget. Jennifer Friedenbach of the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco says Newsom deserves credit for his early actions as governor, but she and others who work with the unhoused say the state needs a permanent source of funding to fight the problem.
0: I would. Give him good marks for focusing on homelessness, but he's really tinkering around the edges and needs to go much farther. You know, bring in additional revenue in order to um, address the situation at the scale that the crisis calls for.
9: Friedenbach, who has known Newsom since his time in local government in San Francisco, says he's always had bold ideas. She says the question now is whether he can follow through and truly solve this growing crisis. In Sacramento, I'm Chris Nichols.
5: Congress is requiring the Marines to fully integrate women into boot camp. It is a historic moment, and now San Diego is testing how it should be done. Sixty women are now the first female Marine recruits to do basic training on the West Coast. They arrived Monday night with 450 male recruits. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh joins us with more. Steve, welcome. Hi, Jade. So, when did Congress mandate an end to separate basic training for the sexes, and was the what was the rationale behind this?
4: So, this happened uh, last year. was part of one of the defense um, bills, and uh, Paris Island, which is the boot camp on the East Coast that already has women, uh, there they have five years to integrate women fully into boot camp, and then San Diego has eight years before they have to fully integrate women in. But the commandant of the Marine Corps has been indicating that he wants to go faster than that. So we have this test that started off Monday night here in San Diego. This is only this one class of 60 women.
5: And critics have charged that separate training leads to a sexist culture in the ranks. What's the dynamic there?
4: Well, I mean, the Marines have had several issues. There was a, something called Marines United, which was a uh, a Facebook page where um, photos of, of women Marines in various stages of undress were, were found. Active duty Marines were on that site. There has been a history of sexism, sexual harassment. And the thought is that this might start at the very beginning because women are not integrated at all levels of boot camp. There is a thought that um, they're seen as something separate from male Marines. So this is an attempt to try to uh, close that gap.
5: Is this mandate applicable to all services or just the Marines? And and how did the Marine Corps react to this move?
4: It only applies to the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps is the last of the services to have this separated boot camp, which is why they're under this this uh, congressional mandate in the past they've reacted by by dragging their feet saying that there was uh, there there were many reasons why they should keep women separate at uh, boot camp but as i said uh, now that they know that this is a done deal and that congress is ordering this to happen th- there is uh, some indication that um, they're not going to wait out the full 8 years to integrate women into san diego so slowly they're starting to uh, to move on this. As I mentioned with this test, Basically, the Marine Corps has a lot of decisions to make in the next year. They're going to have to decide whether or not they're going to integrate women at San Diego and fully integrate them at Paris Island in in South Carolina. There's also some discussion that maybe what they'll ultimately need is a is a brand new boot camp, a th- maybe a third location. They could start fresh with their with their own boot camp. Now the Navy only has one boot camp itself. Uh, it's right outside of Chicago, so this is. Historic because in the hundred year history of the Marines training at MCRD here in San Diego, they've never had women. But more importantly, there's some very large decisions coming for the Marine Corps, and they're going to have to decide whether or not they can do this in two locations or whether they might need a, a third and fresh location.
5: And recruits go first to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, right? The
4: way this would work traditionally is they would get off their planes, they would get onto buses, and they would travel right to MCRD, and they would start the process of, of recruit training. That, that, that sort of iconic image of the drill instructors getting up in their faces, telling them to move, move, move. They call their parents and tell them you know, that they love them and that they've safely arrived in San Diego. But because of COVID, they've now had this sort of two-step process here. So they're arriving right now at the airport, and then they go over to the USO. They go through some COVID testing there so they can find out whether or not anybody is coming into boot camp with COVID. And then they go over to MCRD and get their equipment. But then they're quickly shuttled off for two weeks of quarantine at hotel rooms. And then after two weeks, as long as they're safe, then they'll start that traditional boot camp process.
5: Wow. So COVID's changed things. But now, what did the Marine Corps have to change in order to accommodate women?
4: Right now they say that they have not done all that much at San Diego. They had to add some new supplies to the commissary. I noticed when women were lining up at uh, MCRD on Monday night, they had to each one of them had to have their uh, their shoe size taken because they only had so many uh, boots in the s- uh, sizes for women marines. But for the most part, it, they have not done all of that much. These 60 women will be in their own platoon. They will train with separate drill instructors. But they, uh, but as far as major accommodations, we, we're not really seeing a lot right now.
5: And what about in the long term? Are the Marines planning for major changes as the process moves forward?
4: There has been talk that they would need an extra barracks at uh, MCRD in San Diego, but they're going to find out over the next 13 weeks exactly what it is they do need to have women at uh, at boot camp here in San Diego.
5: And, you know, are there any women drill instructors even in San Diego?
4: There were not up until just very very recently there were women in at uh at MCRD in San Diego, but none of them were drill instructors, but three women volunteered to become drill instructors here in San Diego. They went through the drill instructor training course uh, a few weeks back. They are now trained up and ready to go. They are joined by a group of female drill instructors who are coming over from Paris Island specifically to train this cohort.
5: And I understand you'll be following these women recruits through their training. What will you be looking for? Well, we're good. We
4: want to just tell the story and we want to find out what this process is like. This is incredibly historic. It's worth being documented just for the history value alone of having women here for the first time. And then we'll go through the process and and we'll go through those 13 weeks with them. We'll try to tell their stories and we'll try to get a sense of just like what is it going to take for the Marines to finally fully integrate women at the basic levels of basic training.
5: I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Thanks, Steve.
4: Thanks, Jade.
7: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program
8: at omds.ucsd.edu.
5: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. One of the highlights of the inauguration last week was hearing from National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman. Her poem, The Hill We Climb, evoked the deadly insurrection at the Capitol and appealed for bravery in the face of darkness. Using language to empower is something Gorman says she learned from her mother, a middle school teacher in L.A. And one local school there has been looking at ways to empower students in the aftermath of the violence in Washington. KQED's education reporter Vanessa Rancagno says the school is making space for students to take on leadership roles and create the change they want to see. The morning after a mob
10: stormed the Capitol, Locke College Preparatory Academy Principal of Academics, Blaine Watson, was stressing.
8: I was up all night thinking about uh, the responsibility.
10: Between COVID and George Floyd's killing, he knew his mostly Black and Latino students were already raw.
8: A lot of us make the mistake of just saying, all right, kids, you know, this is what happened and let's hear your thoughts but we have to really be responsible about the messaging around race and how important or unimportant people of color are facing our government.
10: He wanted to listen, but not just that. He knew students and teachers could best identify their own needs in the moment and find ways to meet them. He wanted to support them in doing that. So together, they're planning a series of virtual community town halls. They held the first one on the day before the inauguration.
8: Welcome to our first, our very first series of panel discussions about the things that are going on in our nation, in our community.
10: Student body president Marvion Mabon greeted the 60 or so people in the Zoom conference, a mix of students, parents and staff.
8: We want you to use your voices. Our school and our community is a community that we hear too often is underheard and underrepresented. And this will be that platform to now represent and make sure our voices are heard.
10: It was a place for students to open up about how they'd been feeling since the insurrection. What happened at that Capitol is an insult. That was horrid. That struck all of us in a way that we never thought. It was horrible, I was in shock, and as young kids, we had to grow up with this. 17-year-old Angelica Barrera is student body vice president. So thank you for helping us lead young students like us to be activists, to fight racial injustice. This was also a chance for teachers to give students context. History teacher Alette Kendrick described the insurrection as part of a pattern of white supremacist violence throughout American history. But Kendrick also emphasized this history provides lessons about how to move forward after the violence. We've seen it in our country before, and we've survived it in our country before as well. Okay, and most importantly, these things happen as a backlash, as a negative response. To a lot of positive t- changes and progress that's actually happening in our country. Kendrick and the students have talked about connecting this moment to Watts' own history of civil unrest and how it shaped the community. This very high school was built in response to the Watts riots. Students Marvion and Angelica then called their classmates to action.
8: So get out there and get involved. Don't be scared. Speak your mind. Speak up.
10: Principal Blaine Watson closed by telling the student leaders how proud he was.
8: I'm thankful for you and all the other students who are who are participants today. The call has been made. You, you just gotta answer it. All right, one lock, one love. We love you, Lock High School. And let's get ready for this inauguration tomorrow. Tomorrow's gonna be a day you'll never forget.
10: After the attack in DC, one of Watson's biggest fears was that for students who already had reason to distrust their government, seeing Confederate flags flying in the Capitol, and police standing by and taking selfies, would lead them to lose all faith in their country. The next day, as Marvion watched the newly sworn in President Joe Biden address the nation, he said he was holding his breath.
8: I was like, please, please, please do not cut the strings and said there was an emergency, um, there was a shooting.
10: But seeing Kamala Harris on stage made him feel something else, a sense of possibility.
8: When I saw Barack Obama and Michelle Obama come out as a power couple, we had the first Black senator who was there from Georgia. It was just so much hope and so much inspiration in that one frame. This is the real America.
10: At least for now, this is the country he's choosing to believe in. I'm Vanessa Rancaño.
3: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi,
4: or hohenmotors.com.